Good afternoon, all. Thank you for joining us. My name is Andrew Kettlewell. I'm a practicing attorney at Silva Kettlewell and Pignatelli, a criminal defense firm here in Boston. I previously spent uh, 10 years working as a prosecutor at the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, and I'll be moderating today's discussion on jury selection in criminal cases. The old adage is that you can't win your case picking a jury, but you surely can lose it. And this afternoon, we'll try to help provide some insight and some tips into how to avoid doing that. Our plan is to proceed step-by-step step, chronologically through the jury selection process, beginning with the planning and filing of motions that occurs before jury selection even begins, and learn from our panel of three distinguished attorneys on their experience and their insight into the best practices at each step. Looking to our panel, we have with us the Honorable Judge Asha White, Circuit Justice, the District Court, the Massachusetts Trial Court. Prior to taking the bench, Judge White worked as both an Assistant District Attorney subsequently practice criminal defense in Massachusetts courts. Good afternoon, Judge White. Also, Good afternoon, I'm sorry. <laughs> my apologies. Also uh, with us is Jessica Tripp, founder of the law office of Jessica Tripp and twice named one of Boston Magazine's top lawyers of the year. Attorney Tripp began her career at the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office and has been practicing criminal defense since 2009, handling an array of cases in the district and superior courts in Massachusetts. Good afternoon, Attorney Tripp. Good afternoon. And finally, last but not least, we have Amanda Sheen. Amanda is Chief of Professional Development at Plymouth County, uh, the Plymouth County District Attorney's Office, I should say. She previously worked as an assistant district attorney in Suffolk County, initially from 2002 to 2006. She was a bar advocate from 2008 to 2019 and returned to the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, working there from 2020 to 2023. Uh, she brought her broad uh, range of experience to Plymouth County recently. And thank you for being here, uh, Attorney Sheehan. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. All right. And so, as I said, I think the plan is to start uh, essentially before the, the trial even starts. Um, typically, what we're going to have is some sort of um, pre-trial conference, conference with a judge and with the attorneys uh, in order to prepare for jury selection and kind of getting yourselves ready for that pre-trial conference and getting yourselves actually uh, ready for jury selection itself. I think I'll start with uh, attorney trip. What are the kind of considerations you have going into that process and any uh, filings or motions that you're looking to get out in front of the court uh, before essentially jurors ever enter the room? Sure. So are we talking motions in limine in particular? Yes. Okay. Just, just checking. Um, so in every case, it's um, very important to file um Motions in limine. Um, there are certain motions that I file in every case, um, such as a motion motion to sequester the witnesses, um, a motion that the reasonable doubt charge uh, be given last. Um, those are pretty standard in every case. Um, and then there's always case specific uh, motions, depending on if it's a domestic violence case. There may be a motion uh, to exclude excited utterances um, in gun cases or drug cases, motion to prohibit expert testimony. Um, those are all issues that you want to issue spot ahead of time. The court definitely um, appreciates if you bring to the court's attention any any issues that either are agreed to, but even more importantly, if there's any issues of contention that you want to get out ahead of um, and not be arguing about it in front of the jury. Um, and as part of the typical uh, kind of set of motions and eliminate you're going to present to the judge. Uh, have you had experience presenting any kind of voir dire topics or questions that you'd like to run through with jurors and discussing that with judges? Yes, absolutely. I usually file um, a proposed voir dire questions um, in every case. And those, again, become case specific um, for domestic violence cases. I often ask whether uh, any potential juror themselves or a close member of, of their friend or family um, has been either a victim 
um, or accused uh, in a domestic violence case. I also ask if they belong to or support uh, any type of victim's rights group. Um, and along those lines on a gun case, whether people are involved with an agency such as the NRA um, or in the alternative anti-gun uh, lobby organizations, it just helps get you a better sense of what your potential jury pool, what, what some of their background is. All right. And so in terms of the, the voir dire topics that you're typically uh, raising for a judge, those sound like in your practice, they've been uh, pretty much kind of case specific type topical issues that you're going to want to explore uh, yes. outside of what jurors are kind of listing on their questionnaire, those type of topics. I usually I, I file a kind of a form um, proposed voir dire in every case. And I'd say the majority of my questions, I, the judge often tells me, I'm going to ask these as a matter of course anyway. Um, but I always like to file it just to protect the record, um, to note for the court, you know, that if something gets messed up and the question doesn't get asked for some reason, you know, it was something that I asked for. Um, but the standard questions about uh, you know, especially nowadays, the police officer question is a pretty big one um, that judges are very cognizant of and always make sure to ask whether a witness would tend to believe or disbelieve a police officer witness simply because they're a police officer. Um, those are particularly important in cases where you are gun cases, gang cases, uh, drug cases, where you're most of your witnesses, if not all of your witnesses, are going to be police officers. And oftentimes, you know, the defense is the credibility of those witnesses. And Attorney Sheen, um, in your experience, are you typically filing the same types of, of voir dire topics, uh, kind of case-specific type issues that you want to raise? So I, I'd say, especially from the prosecution perspective, it's it's absolutely case-specific. Um, um, in district court, I can say um, there's not a significant amount of filings requesting specific voir dire, but there are questions um, that do come up. And as attorney Tripp just referenced, um, particularly where you have a case where your only witnesses are law enforcement, um, you know, given the level of distrust, um, the you know, prosecution absolutely wants to ask that question. There's the standard question of, would you believe um, the testimony of an officer over that of a civilian and vice versa? But I would say it's not sufficient enough. Um, and as attorney Tripp just said, the question needs to be more specific to um, would you believe or disbelieve an officer just based on the nature of their profession? Um, and so that's in the cases that she referenced, gun cases, drug cases, um, assault and battery police officer, things of that nature. Um, there's not a, a ton of other questions that I think the, the Commonwealth is proposing, the prosecution is proposing um, ahead of time. I think it's important to note that you want to um, be careful to look at the questions. I think it's very common and, and I think surprising if an attorney does not file a motion um, for specific voir dire questions. And so as the prosecution, you wanna be sure to carefully review those. And in a lot of instances, you're not objecting because you want to, um, you do want there to be a clear record and, and more importantly, you wanna preserve the integrity of the proceeding. And so you need to, you need to know that these people that are going to be seated in that box um, are not biased, that there's no implicit bias, um, you know, nothing in the subconscious that's going on. Um, there are specific questions that you could think of if um, you have witnesses who are not citizens, um, you know, and what are people's feelings about, um, you know, the status of an individual, because um, you have victims who may have applied for a U visa that could come up in the course of a case. Um, and so you want to know if, if for some reason there might be jurors who would favor or disfavor that individual, um, people who are where English isn't their first language. You want to know if if that might impact. So um, it is very case specific and witness specific. Should, should we try to proceed in the Andrews? Okay. Yeah, thank you. And uh, oh. judge, it's how important is it um, for people? Okay, Andrew, could you ask that again? You actually froze on my screen in the last. Oh part. yes, I apologize. Yes, uh, in your experience, how important is for how important is it for for attorneys to kind of get these questions uh, 
by the rule to you in writing and have these issues flagged for you? It is uh, critically important. And it, that's a theme I'll have through the, the course of this panel is the importance of preparation and raising these things uh, beforehand in writing. Um, in terms of asking for specific kinds of voir dire, whether it be attorney conducted voir dire or panel voir dire, there's actually a standing order uh, in the district court. If anyone wants to look at it, it's uh, 118, I, I believe is the uh, standing order. The superior court standing order is for the most part the same, it's substantially similar. Uh, and you're really supposed to make requests for specific voir dire about five days before trial if you want to do attorney conducted or panel conducted voir dire. Uh, so by rule, it's really supposed to be raised before trial in terms of voir dire questions that you want raised by a judge or you may want to ask yourself. Um, it is really important to give those to opposing counsel and have that in writing in front of a judge. Trials are uh, moving fairly quickly. Judges are trying to uh, get through motions and limine and get the case in front of a jury as quickly as humanly possible. And uh, as attorney Sheena, attorney Tripp will tell you, it is part of your job to slow us down. Uh, and and <laughs> part of the way you do that is by putting things in writing and forcing a judge to read it and forcing a judge to digest it. Okay. And when you put it in front of a judge and they have to go through your 20 voir dire questions, you're forcing that judge to actually give it some thought. You can try and do it orally. It's going to be summarily dismissed if you do it orally. Um, so uh, you, you, you want to make sure that uh, uh, you have everything in writing and you make specific requests because a lot of times the questions that you want, and uh, Jessica mentioned it, Judges will say often that, well, that's in the model questions, uh, that's covered in the model questions, but not everything is covered by the model questions. So unless you ask some of the things that you want uh, uh, asked of the jury are not going to be asked unless you request. And oftentimes judges will say yes to things that are outside of the model questions. And oftentimes, if I think you have phrased it better than the model questions, I will ask your version. Uh, so it, it, it's it's really important uh, to make those requests before trial, to have everything in writing and allow a judge to take a look at it uh, uh, and digest it uh, 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 so you can get the questions that, that you want in front of a jury. And as you said, important for purposes of preserving the record as well. Yes. Ms. Tripp commented on that uh, as well. Um, and so after kind of submitting those issues and I, I Judge, you mentioned uh, panel versus uh, individual and attorney-led, actually. Um, typically, in everybody's practice, and specifically, Judge, with regard uh, to, to what you've seen, is it fairly standard to kind of hash all of these issues out, certainly, before jurors are actually summoned, brought up? Yes. Yeah. Um, in uh, If you're in superior court, sometimes these issues can be hashed out even prior uh, 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 to the trial date, which is ideal. Uh, that is not uh, always possible and not usually possible in the district court because of the volume that we have in, in the district court. But uh, sometimes you can make that request and I think it's very helpful on cases that may last a little bit longer than one day, which does happen in, in the uh, district court. Uh, but um, uh, all these issues, will be hashed out before the jury ever comes upstairs. So you want to think about them as part and parcel of your motions and limine, really. Uh, right. You know, it, it's all part of the pretrial uh, conversation and every bit as important as any other motion and limine. Uh, so how we go about picking the jury is going to be something that, that that's worked out before the jury ever comes upstairs and you, and you get a look at them. So it's the first thing that we do. And that's a good segue into our, our next topic, essentially, is when jurors are brought up uh, in a lot of ways for most attorneys in the district and superior court. The first kind of look you actually get at the Venari is in the form of the, the juror questionnaires. Uh, the juror questionnaire is uh, actually a statutory questionnaire containing biographical information. Um, and at least in my experience, kind of the first um uh, look at any kind of jury pool on a criminal case is seated at a desk 
uh, and a stack of papers brought in from the court officer and handed to me. Um, Attorney Sheehan, is that similar to kind of what you've experienced? Yes. Um, so getting those jury questionnaires, absolutely. It's a, it's the first thing that, that you're going to look at. They're brought in, um, you say hello, and then you're sitting down and you're reviewing those as quickly as, as possible. Um, I, you know, it's a personal choice in terms of how everyone goes through those, those questionnaires. Um, and it's then creating sort of, whether it's notes or a chart, I, I know that I've always created a chart for myself. I list them all out. Um, I'm making markings as to whether there are people based on their questionnaires that I think will be good for the jury, um, people that I think would not be good, people that I have questions or concerns about. Um, so I, I create that chart for myself and then I'm making notes based on what their responses are. Um, you know, you're, you're looking, it's a difficult situation. A lot of people feel unfortunately burdened by jury service. Um, and so you're looking for what is their employment or, or current education situation? Are they involved in something that's very time consuming and being taken away from that's gonna be difficult for them. Um, and they're going to be focused more on that as opposed to sitting and listening to the evidence. Um, What's their background and history? Do have they been involved with the criminal justice system, either um, on the side of connections to law enforcement or people in government, or um, have they been involved on the other side of it, having been charged, arrested, or family members in that position? Um, you're looking to see what then that um, what that involvement. You have to go deeper into what that involvement is, and and that would be um, probably asked at sidebar. But those are the notations you're making, things that you're um, you're looking for there people who've had restraining orders um, or been accused of domestic violence. Um, so many, you know, I could go on and on, but so many different little factors that you're looking for and making notes about to make sure that um, once the venari is done and you get through those sort of standard questions as well as the individual questions that have been allowed. Um, what I see in practice now is just about every juror is brought up to sidebar for additional questioning and. Um, you want to make sure that you are ready when those questions are being answered at sidebar to ask the judge to make further inquiry into anything that's raised a red flag for you, whether that's a good red flag or a bad red flag. And attorney Tripp, um, similar kind of practice on your end, using the questionnaires to kind of get organized and, and get a, a, a map anyway of uh, the individuals you're dealing with? Yes, absolutely. I think attorney Shane and I have a very similar way of um, dealing with the sheets when we get them of kind of going through and there are certain particular boxes um, on the bottom of the questionnaire that I always look to first about uh, law enforcement and, and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, or whether uh, the last question, if there's anything that would make you be an impartial, uh, could not be an impartial juror. Um, people write some Pretty interesting things down there. Um, but I always make sure if someone does that, you know, on my notes, I'll have their number and then, you know, question, you know, number three and make sure that we inquire more about that um, at sidebar. And it's also a good time to, um, cause I know with my, um, with my clients, at least in the superior court, the way we've, we've been handling it is instead of bringing each juror up to sidebar, um, they take all the jurors out of the room and they bring them in one at a time and put them on the witness stand, um, which makes it so much easier to be able to not only get a better kind of view of them, um, but be able to conference with your client um, because it, it can be very crowded and uncomfortable with two lawyers, a defendant and a juror all cramped around sidebar. Um, so this it, that kind of setup makes it easier you know, for the client to go over the um, so the client can go over everything uh, with you at the same time. Um, that would be great. Um, and you alluded a little bit there to kind of how the individual voir dire process has been looking recently in, in Superior Court, in your experience. Yes. Um, in terms of, of other types of voir dire, uh, as Judge White mentioned earlier, there is a panel voir dire. Um, has anyone had experience with panel voir dire recently no i think for the most part it's it's been primarily uh individual um, at least 
since the pandemic and everyone's experience? Yes. Yes. We had panel of Wadir once in Roxbury, I think in the course of the um, three years that I was there before transitioning. And um, it's very uncommon, but I do think that there are a lot of attorneys and judges who support it and want to try to implement it more. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if we see more people making that request. Um, it's, it's foreign, but something we need to learn. And I think um, given the discussion we had had in preparation for this webinar, um, if you can use it effectively, it's really, really valuable um, if you know how to do it. And, and I think like you said, Attorney Kettlewell, get the, the jurors to play off of each other and everyone engaged and answering the questions and really get a feel for these individuals. And I, I think that'll be a theme moving forward, getting jurors to engage and to provide as much information as possible. I think it's pretty much what everybody uh, involved in the process is looking to do. Um, in terms of, of the actual uh, individual voir dire um, kind of structure, um, Attorney Tripp, you just gave us a little bit of a look at uh, the uh, Superior Court recent trend. Um, Amanda Sheen, do you kind of, can you give us a, a layout of the mechanics of how things have been looking in district court recently? Sure. Um, it, it's really primarily what we've, we've discussed, which is um, after the initial questions of the entire panel um, by the judge to include the standard and then any additional that are allowed, just about every, um, from what I've seen, even if they don't raise their hands during those questions, um, just about everyone is still brought up to sidebar um, because I think I think everyone, judges and both sides are recognizing um, that the standard questions probably could be updated and, and could use a little more to them. Um, questions that are being asked are good, but they still want an opportunity, I think, to engage with the individual on some level. Um, also just ask maybe some general questions about, you know, would a two-day trial be a, burdensome. Um, is there anything, are you know, are you sure there's nothing else that would affect your ability to be impartial? Um, so that's that's what I've seen in in district in the Boston Municipal Courts is that they go through the initial and then everyone's brought to sidebar um, during the course of selection. And Judge White um, is somebody who's probably doing this more than than the rest of us. Is that uh, uh, kind of familiar in terms of of your practice? Yes. So the overwhelming uh, majority of attorneys uh, request voir dire questions, and really they are asking that I ask them uh, uh, to the jury pool. So what happens in 98% of cases uh, is that uh, I will ask a series of questions to the entire jury pool. I'll ask the model questions and maybe a couple of additional questions the attorneys have requested that I ask to the entire pool. There are some questions that are uh, better off uh, had in private, asked in private. So uh, I do individual voir dire in every one of my cases. So I call each juror up to sidebar and I, and I ask uh, additional questions. Per the standing order, uh, judges are required to allow attorneys to ask uh, follow-up questions, to allow uh, attorneys to ask some follow-up questions. So I always tell the attorneys, I always tell the jury, I'm going to allow, don't be caught off guard. The lawyers are going to be asked to follow up if I ask you some additional questions. And I always warn the lawyers and I'm warning all the lawyers listening now that you want to really think about your follow-up questions and it's not meant to be an entire cross-examination. Okay. Um, so uh, you don't want to make a judge step in and say, okay, that's enough in front of a juror, right? So if you can avoid that, uh, please do. Uh, but that that's generally how it happens. You'll call each juror up individually. And even if they haven't raised their hand, even if there's nothing on their questionnaire that raises any sort of issue, I always ask again at the very least, is there uh, anything uh, is there uh, anything about this case that would prevent you from being fair and impartial? Can you think of any reason in this case you cannot be fair and impartial? They might not have they might not raise their hand in front of the other jurors. Fifty percent of the time, I'll ask that question, and someone who didn't raise their hand might have something to say now when they're in private. Uh, so that 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 is what you see normally. 
I have never done panel voir dire as a judge. I did it once as a lawyer, probably in 2016 or 17 in Superior Court. Uh, it's very different than uh, individual voir dire. Uh, it is uh, something I've only seen that one time. So we were all trying to figure it out. I was uh, surprised at how forthcoming uh, many jurors were in front of a lot of people. Um, but it, it it ended up being a little bit like a classroom where there are a lot people who raise their hand all the time. And then there are people who don't say anything. But you get some you get a lot of value out of it because you get to watch uh, other jurors react to the other jurors who are talking. So you you end up, you know, sort of seeing these group dynamics. Um, so uh, I have never had an attorney request panel voir dire uh, since I've been a judge. And I've only um, I only saw it once as a lawyer. And I, I've never seen attorneys request attorney led voir dire either. They they are usually OK with me leading the voir dire and me allowing to ask them follow up questions. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't ask for the process that you want. Um, and your, your comment on panel being a lot like a, a classroom, yes. um, I, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's never fun to be the person who has to call on people. Yes. <laughs> uh, believe me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I do think that in terms of, of the difference that, that has kind of been highlighted here a little bit, uh, one of the, the perks, it sounds like in everyone's experience of individual voir dire, uh, speaking of folks, whether it be up on a witness stand in Superior Court or at sidebar, um, is you might get somebody to open up about a, a more difficult subject a little bit uh, easier. Um, and the perk of panel sounds more like it's it's in the realm of kind of seeing how people interact as a group uh, and kind of maybe being able to spot like impact jurors or jurors who, who might uh, be look like they might be uh, kind of running a discussion in a jury room. Um, and in terms of uh, the types of, of questions that you, you do hear in terms of uh, individual voir dire, Judge, I'll ask you first, uh, just so we don't get Miss Sheehan or Miss Tripp in trouble. What are the types of mistakes you, you typically see um, attorneys make uh, in, in those types of circumstances? And uh, when asking questions on on, on individual voir dire or panel voir dire, yes. um, so individual, uh, an individual. Okay, um, it's it, it's a great question, Andrew. And the first mistake I would say is being afraid to ask questions. Right, right? that's that, that's the first mistake. Is um, you really want to think about questions that you want to ask beforehand, but then on the spot, if uh, you know someone answers a question from me. And you have a follow up or you see something there that I didn't touch upon, you know, you have to take the chance of of letting it rip and asking. Not only are you getting more information from this juror, there's also a value in seeing how they react to you when you ask them a question. You know, there's this unconscious behavior. And if someone's sort of recoiling when you ask them a question, it may mean nothing, but it it, it may mean something, right? Right. So, um, you know, th th there's a lot of value in 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 asking people questions. So um, that's number one is being hesitant to ask a juror questions because a lot of lawyers get nervous. What if I ask a question in a way a juror doesn't like? Then they're going to hold it against me and hold it against my client. But the reality of it is. If they don't like you or if they don't like something about your client, you want to know that now. OK, you don't want to find that out later on. OK, so the second mistake I would say in terms of questions, I, I, I won't say mistake, but things that you're really not allowed to ask. And I say it's a mistake because if a judge has to step in and cut you off, that doesn't feel good. You know, trials are stressful that can throw off your rhythm and, and they're doing it in front of a juror. So you want to avoid that. So um, questions about prior juror service, um, and I've I've tried to warn attorneys before trial, th that question is not allowed. So if someone writes, I sat on a jury in 2010, you're not allowed to ask them what happened in that jury, how did you find? And lawyers always wanna ask that question and I have to stop them and remind them, you can't ask that question. Um, questions that are hypotheticals that are too close to the, the uh, issue at hand, or how somebody would rule. A popular question I've seen lawyers want to ask is, would you have to hear my client testify 
in order to find him not guilty. I think that's on the that's on the border uh, of, of of something that's allowable and something that's not because it's it's getting very close to asking a juror how they would rule or what evidence they would need. Um, so those sort of questions are risky because they can incur the wrath of a judge very quickly. Um, but uh, in addition to that, I think uh, I think asking I think asking too many questions also can present a problem really nitpicking over and, and trying to get into seven, eight, nine questions. Not only does it waste time, then it can rub a lot of jurors uh, 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 the wrong way. So once you think you have, you know, enough information, you, you want to think about moving on. So the, 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 those are the mistakes I see lawyers make. And following that, Ms. Tripp, um, what are the types of, of areas that, that you kind of find most fruitful to try to explore when you, uh, are up at sidebar or actually have the opportunity to kind of follow up and ask some questions of a prospective juror? Well, I think, unfortunately, a lot of it does become very, not only case specific, but what the juror's answers were. Um, I think a mistake some attorneys make is they feel like they have to ask every juror a question. Um, and I think that isn't necessarily a, a good way to kind of go into it. Um, you don't, you don't need to ask everyone a question. If there's not an actual follow-up that you have, you don't need to ask it just to ask it. Um, but I agree with Judge White. I think it's a it's is a really good way to when they come up to sidebar to see how they kind of interact with with you and with the prosecutor. I mean, you can tell a lot from not even talking to them, but just people's body language, where they're looking, who they're looking at, the way they're looking at them. Um, you, I find you can get a really good read on people, um, just kind of seeing, you know, when they answer the judge's question, are they looking at the judge? Are they looking at the prosecutor? Are they looking at the defense attorney? You know, are they looking down or, are they, you know, are they acting nervous? Um, it's a good chance to kind of get to see a juror up close and personal, even if you don't have any questions for them. And attorney Sheen, uh, would you agree with that? Sorry, I went to hit unmute and turned off my video instead. Um, yes, I I know one of the things um, I've grown accustomed to and really like up at Sidebar um, that a lot of judges do, and I myself now try to um, accomplish. Whether it's through you know, through me asking the question or the judges, um, you know, is the juror going to be distracted? Is there something going on that that's going to cause a distraction, right? We all want to know that everyone sitting there is, is able to um, invest in the case um, and the evidence, right? That's what they're there for. Um, and we all know how easy it is to get distracted in the course of life, no matter what you're doing. So um, I know that's something I like to try to focus on at Sidebar. That's something I'm paying attention to. Like, like attorney Tripp said, where are they looking you know, are are they paying attention? Are they listening to the questions? Um, just that quick, brief interaction can tell you if they're ready to um, to do what they need to, or if it seems like they could, you know, care less and really want to be out of there. Um, and it's everyone's duty, but that doesn't change the fact that if you have somebody who's going to sit in that box and be looking out the window the entire time, um, that's a major concern for, for both sides. So. That's something that I focus on. And, and then again, it, it sort of case specific as things um, might come up in the course of now that person being up at sidebar and more open to answering questions than they were sitting in the, the audience raising their hand. Um, that leads us into actually a an attendee question that uh, I think either uh, Miss Tripp or Miss Sheen might be able to handle. Uh, and that deals with an actual specific topic itself. And that's essentially, do, do you have any experience uh, questioning jurors or jury's view uh, about uh, the Me Too movement in any types of, of cases where that might be relevant, sexual assault cases, domestic violence, that type of stuff? If we could start with uh, you, Jess. Um, yes, I can say in, um, I tried a rape case in Suffolk Superior in January, and those were definitely, um, questions that, uh, I can't remember if we use the words me too exactly. Um, but it was definitely, um, we definitely asked very specific questions about, you know, your feelings about, um, it, 
sexual assault and um, different things along that line. Um, times have definitely changed, um, you know, from 20 years ago when I was a sexual assault prosecutor. Um, so the, yeah, I, you definitely want to ask people's kind of opinion on that. Um, that's definitely, especially in sexual assault cases. Absolutely. Whereas in, you know, a case involving, um, trying to think where, like where there's a police officer victim. Um, I know I've, I've asked questions around, you know, do you belong to any of the, you know, back the blue type of groups or, or that type of thing. Um, and for the most, I've had judges allow um, both types of questions. And uh, Amanda, any experience in the same realm with those types of specific topics could be uh, kind of more hot button issue type topics is what it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. Um, you see it, you know, with all sorts of different different organizations and and movements, right? You go go back to some time ago when I think probably the standard question on OUIs was always. Um, are you or any family member a, a, a member of MAD, SAD, things like that, right? And now it's become Me Too, um, Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Um, I've seen judges go both ways in terms of, like Attorney Tripp said, steering away from the language of the movements or sort of you have people, you've, you definitely have um, attorneys try to get into like political affiliations and then how that will impact Um and from what I've seen, judges try to stray away from that. It, it's, you know, they, they focus more on um, this is a sexual assault case. You know, do you, have you or a family member or a friend been a victim of or know anyone that's been involved in? Um, but then there are also um, discussions about those movements or different organizations because, um, it, you know, that that shows different beliefs and and. Um, supportive things that we have to dive into to see if there's any um, subconscious bias there. Um, so absolutely with so many different, like I said, organizations and movements that is becoming, um, you know, there, there are questions specific um, to just about any type of case that involves uh, such movements or organizations. And, and those questions are absolutely, absolutely getting asked. Yeah. And obviously with, certainly prohibited from inquiring about uh, political affiliations and beliefs and that type of thing. But there, there sounds like there's a fine line in there somewhere and without putting uh, judge white on the spot too much, I guess I'll ask judge. Mm -hmm. um, what are the, I, I suppose, what are the types of um, arguments uh, that you'd like to hear uh, in terms of considering a, a motion to ask a question like that? And what are the considerations uh, that you'd like to hear uh, kind of that have gone into it from uh, a party on either side? Sure. Um, it's an it's an excellent question. Uh, it is uh, a complex question uh, that, uh, honestly, I think different judges will have uh, very different views on. Uh, but um, I think there is a fine line between, well, to answer your question specifically, Andrew, what I what I like to see are what I like to see is lawyers asking very pointed questions, specific questions with an explanation and an argument as to how it's relevant to the particular facts of this case. So uh, questions about uh, the uh, Me Too movement in a sexual assault case. My general answer is. Yes, I can think of many circumstances why I certainly would allow lawyers to delve into that, but not in every kind of, of sexual assault case. Sexual assault carries uh, a wide swath of factual scenarios. But for instance, if it's you know one of the terrible cases that we have where it's uh, sexual assault uh, between two family members, um, it, it may or may not be as relevant uh, as uh, uh, you know another scenario. Uh, uh, depending on the circumstance. So I think for me, the distinction is the reason why I would allow something uh, along those lines is because the Me Too movement is a specific movement that arose in a very particular context for a very specific purpose. So people, and it's recent, okay, within the last you know, 15 years, so people can have uh, different views and opinions that might affect their ability to be fair and impartial in that particular case. The distinction is 
when you try to get into big picture political issues, it's it's really inappropriate. So here's the here's the distinction as I at the way I see it. If someone says, uh, we have all heard about well, have you heard about the movement we refer to as Me Too? And uh, if you are aware of it, does it affect your ability to be fair and impartial in this kind of case? I would probably allow that. What I would not allow is if a lawyer wants me to ask, what are your opinions on modern feminism? Uh, uh, okay, right. That, that, you know, that, that's really different, right? That That is this overly broad thing that's just going to confuse everybody. How does a, a juror begin to answer that, you know, within, you know, a, a two, three minute time frame? Uh, I think the Me Too question is is very different than that uh, uh, bigger, large scale question. So if you have a firearm case, um, someone, uh, you know, and, and someone used a firearm and maybe they're arguing self-defense, I may allow someone to argue uh, uh, to ask, uh, you know, do you do you believe that, uh, you know, there's ever a good reason uh, to use a firearm? OK, I might I, I might allow someone to ask that because a lot of people might say, I don't think people should ever own guns, you know, and, and you know, so you might not want to have that person if you're defending a person who, who had a gun. Um, but I'm not I'm probably not going to allow a lawyer. Again, there are always exceptions, but I'm probably not going to allow a lawyer to ask, do you think the Second Amendment should be repealed? OK, and I've had lawyers request I ask large scale questions like that. And I, I, I just think it's a complete distraction. It's not relevant. It's not specific enough. And you're not even going to get what you're looking for. Uh, OK, it, 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 it's just, it's going to take a complete wrong turn and it's going to backfire. And I think I think it causes a ton of problems. But I hope that wasn't too too confusing of an answer. My short answer is, yes, I would allow a question like the Me Too movement question and similar kinds of questions about pointed uh, political movements or organizations. But large scale political philosophies. Uh, no. But the line can be blurry there, uh, uh, depending on the topic. Um, and I also think I think there were a number of of helpful and great points in there. Um, these types of topics um, are probably the types of topics it sounds like that that are best addressed in individual voir dire, mm -hmm. as opposed to um, certainly a question. Uh, to the Venari. I know, Judge, you mentioned earlier that uh, part of your practice was with some of the more kind of difficult questions. Uh, you'd ask all jurors, but it would be the kind of thing that took place actually at sidebar and not just to the pool uh, out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and another kind of piece of this that, that we're skirting around a little bit is on the actual um, type of question itself. Um, some of these questions that that it sounds like everyone has had experience asking uh, is the type of question that's a little bit more pointed questions that are kind of narrowly tailored and um, kind of specifically ask somebody about an issue and whether that could affect them and whether they could remain fair and impartial um, in terms of of more open-ended questions uh, certainly with regards to, to biographical type information, does anyone have experience on that or, or judge would, uh, in your practice, have you kind of allowed lawyers to explore that a little bit? I know I always was, was the, uh, kind of irritating person who was asking people about their jobs and explain what that means. What do you do? Uh, I don't know what a forensic engineer, is. uh, those types of questions. I, I think, uh, and I'll, I'll let uh, uh, Jessica and Amanda jump in, so I'll be quick. But I, I think that um, biographical questions are some of the best questions. And I think they are, you know, unless they completely go off the rails, they're 100% relevant. Um, what someone does for a living matters. It affects how they might view things, how they see things. I think you have to understand what someone does for a living. Uh, there are a lot of titles that I don't understand either. Um, there, there are a lot of jobs like that. I don't really know what the person does. And I never ask it because it's not my place, I don't think, to get into what the person does. Uh, but the lawyers, I always allow them to ask, you know, like you said, a, a forensic, blah, 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 you know, what does that mean? Uh, or, or, or this sort of engineer, what does that mean? And I'll tell you, in criminal cases, it can end up mattering a, a good percent of the time. If you're doing civil cases, which we haven't gotten into a ton, obviously, but if for those uh, of the... Uh, uh, public watching that are doing civil cases, 
what someone does for a living is a big deal, right? Um, it really may affect how they see this lawsuit between people, right? So um, if they're an employer and, and, and so the employer being sued, sometimes they, they, they have feelings about that. So biographical information, where someone works, uh, if they have children, uh, you know, where they live, um, I think they matter. They're not dispositive always as to whether you should pick a juror, but it gives you some insight to what their perspective might be. So I always allow lawyers to ask those follow-up questions about uh, anyone's bi uh, biographical information. It's on the questionnaire. To me, it's fair game. And so trying to uh, move us on a little bit here, um, we run through the uh, the voir dire. Um, in terms of everybody's practice, uh, I guess what I'd like to ask is, do you typically, um, are you typically asked or judge, do you typically ask folks to make a challenge essentially at the time or uh, immediately following the voir dire of uh, the juror? I ask, I require lawyers to make their four cause challenges immediately after the individual voir dire. And I, uh, always uh, save the preemptories until we've actually filled the jury box with seven or 14 jurors in superior court. Um, so, and then I'll, after we have a whole sitting jury, then I'll say to the lawyers, now you can use your preemptory challenges. So four cause challenges at the time, preemptory after we uh, uh, actually get to pick the seven or 14 jurors. In my experience, um, I typically was usually asked to, to kind of exercise both. Essentially, Miss mm -hmm. Tripp, I see you nodding. Is that is that kind of how you've you've had things go recently? Or yes, and it's experience? awful. <laughs> <laughs> Asha, you're Judge White. You need to need to come to Superior. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, most of the judges, um, it, at least I think all the Superior Court trials that I've had, they you know they say you know we'll do the and I think it makes sense to do the the four cause challenges right away. But the preemptories, it can make it really hard when you have to do it right then and there. And especially, you know, pre-COVID, when oftentimes you didn't have your clients, you know, with you. Um, and then so, you know, you'd have to go back to the table and try, you know, like it was it was very awkward and very it, it's stressful to do it that way. I think it's 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 better if you fill the box kind of like get a sense of an overall what you're working with and then make decisions. But uh, that's not how it's been going. So you, yeah, you kind of have to be ready to think on your feet and, you know, and a, another big thing is, you know, make sure you know what's coming up in your, um, in your juror questionnaire, like who's next, because you may have, you know, this juror that you're like, eh, it's not great, but you know, I'm going to strike him you know, as a preemptory. And then you're out of preemptories. And the next person that comes up is, you know, you can't strike him for cause for whatever reason, but they're even worse than, you know, the person you bumped. So it's, it, it, this is a whole strategy that I think no one will ever be perfect at, but um, there's a few little things you can do to try and um, make it the most beneficial for your client. And Attorney Sheen, in terms of uh, your practice, uh, how have you typically seen it and do you have a preference? Uh, I, I typically see it um, differently, like Judge White said. Um, the four cause right then and there while the individual is is um, a few steps away from sidebar and then the peremptories are later when everyone is seated and I would much prefer it that way. Um, you want that opportunity to get a feel for everyone who's been seated who is coming up and then decide whether or not you want to use those those peremptories on the spot um, I, I think is is difficult and harder um, and then certainly limits you down the road. It's one of the few situations where prosecutors and defense lawyers feel the exact same way about it and would prefer it that way. So why not do it that way? <laughs> um, in terms of, of four cause challenges, Judge, what uh, what are you typically kind of looking to hear uh, from either of the parties, defense attorneys or prosecutors, when they raise a four cause challenge? Um, so, you know, it it depends on, you know, it depends on the case, obviously it gets, it gets very case specific, but um, for four cause challenges, I think you want to really listen to the answer that the juror gave. And, um, and you want to uh, not, not just look at their questionnaire, because honestly, 
most times a judge is probably not going to strike somebody simply because they what of what they wrote on their questionnaire. Although there are times it's so explicit, then then yes. But um, you want to listen very closely to what uh, 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 the juror answered, and then when you make your four cause challenge, you want to make sure that you have an argument. The thing that confuses me the most, and it happens a lot, I I, I turn to uh, attorney trip and I say um, any you know, for cause, you know, she, she knows what I mean. I say for cause and attorney trip, not her specifically. I'm using her as an example, by the way, but she'll say, she'll, uh, she'll say, uh, yeah, yes, I challenge for cause and I'll say, okay. And then the lawyer just looks at me and I'm waiting for your argument. Right. So, you know, you want to formulate a reason why the answer that they gave excludes this person. Right. So it doesn't have to be long. Right. But you want to formulate some sort of reason. Um, so, it, you know, uh, that's what I would encourage uh, a lawyer to do is to really give thought as to why this would prejudice your side of the case. It can be one or two sentences. Um, and uh, also to make sure that if it's a close call, if you think it's a close call, make the four cause challenge. All right. Don't don't don't. If it passes the smile test make the four cause challenge. Don't waste a preemptory if there's a possible chance for a four, a four cause challenge, but um, very specific to the case. So it's hard to say, but try and try and come up with a little bit of an argument. Cause um, I have judges change their mind. Yes. If, you know, oh, yeah. if, yeah. if, if, you know, if you say, you know, for cause, well, I'm not really sure Ms. Tripp, mm -hmm. but then you give your reason and you explain why. And so, I mean, not always, but sometimes you are able to convince them. And then it, you know, as judge white said, then it saves your preemptory. Right. And making a record, obviously, particularly with developments in recent case law is always uh, paramount when it comes to uh, doing anything in the courtroom, but certainly picking a jury. Okay. I imagine, um, Attorney Sheen, that, that you have some experience kind of dealing with that and also with peremptory challenges, uh, working on the prosecution side. Um and in terms of kind of what you teach and, and what you've practiced is is making a record uh, in terms of of challenging for cause and also if you're going to challenge for a peremptory important. Yes, absolutely. Um, so to answer that question and also piggyback off of what Judge White said, think about it logically. If you have to be able, if you get a bats and source challenge, right, you have to be able to support your basis for just a peremptory challenge. You absolutely have to be able to support your basis for a four cause challenge. Um, I know for me professionally, the things that I'm looking for are hesitation, um, shaky versus definitive answers. I don't, I don't think so. Um, right. As opposed to no or yes. Um, I think most of us as adults have a pretty good grasp on our beliefs and uh, our moral code and value or whatever, you know, whatever characteristic you want to refer to. And so for the most part, some questions do get confusing. And so people hesitate because, you know, it's it's coming out in this legal jargonish sort of way. And, and they're, you know, they kind of sit there and they hesitate because they just don't understand the question versus, you know, those questions that are straightforward understandable and when the person hesitates um, or gives a sort of shaky non-definitive answer those are the things that I'm looking for and those are the things that I'm touching on when I'm saying for cause um, I'm saying judge I don't think so isn't definitive that's that's not certain that's uncertain um, you know we all know what I don't think so means versus yes or no so um, th those are absolutely um, I tell attorneys that they they must be able to articulate what those four um, four cause challenges are. And obviously, as things more specific come up, um, you know, whether it's a relationship to someone that's been involved in something or, or law enforcement or government or um, someone who's been involved on on the defense side of it, you know, what as those things come up, obviously, then you can um, hear what the person relays. And if that gives you cause and cause for concern, then that's what you can relay for your first cause. Um, and similarly, you, you have to, um, you have to, be, you have to be able to say um, why on a peremptory, you know, if, if, if you get challenged, you have to be able to say, you can't, well, I didn't really like their vibe. They, again, it, it could be the similar things. Seem, they seem distracted. They were hesitant. Um, you know, 
weren't answering the questions, whatever it might be, there's different reasons. Um, but yes, absolutely teach um, tell attorneys that they have to um, every time they're thinking about striking someone, whether it's for a cause or, or peremptory, they have to be able to articulate why. Um, that that's a must. And, and, and Andrew, a, a quick a quick comment from what both Jessica and Amanda said. I think it's so important to stress that you can change a judge's mind. I, I think that was such an important comment. The this is all happening fast. You know, in a sense, we're making big decisions actually pretty quickly in jury selection. So everyone is forced to think on their feet. And when you don't have a ton of time to really process answers in complicated matters, there's a lot of times when attorneys make arguments and I change my mind because I didn't initially see it because I was thinking about it for only, you know, two minutes. And oftentimes when you've only had a chance to think of something for two minutes, someone can give you an argument and you can say, okay, I didn't think about it like that, right? It, ha it happens all the time. Um, so, you know, I've been involved in trials for roughly 20 years. And even though you get more experience, I always feel like jury selection, I'm still figuring, I'm still figuring it out. I, I don't know if we ever actually ever become experts on it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, make, make your arguments because it, it will change people's minds often. And can I add one thing to that? Um, because we've talked about how fast things are moving, whether it be district court, superior court, criminal, civil, um, everybody is trying to, you know, push the case through efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I think we need to take a step back and pause and slow it down because we real we have to realize that big decisions are getting made. Um, these individuals are going to have to make a big decision. And so, Jury selection has, um, I think in my experience, I don't know what, what Jess and Judge White would say, but, um, or you, Andrew, it's gotten a lot longer. It takes longer, mm -hmm. yeah. but I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, and it's just something that we have to get used to because I, I think it's it's a must for us to dive deeper than we ever have before. Agreed. Agreed. And you mentioned earlier, uh, bats and sores. I think we could probably take up uh, a two or three hour training itself on bats and sores. <laughs> but um, and the, the case law is it's kind of developed. But um, I think just as a reminder for everybody, uh, both sides can always raise a sores challenge. Um, and it's crucial and important that that you as a challenging attorney uh, have an answer and have a, a, a genuine uh, solid basis for what that peremptory is. And as we kind of discussed, that requires thinking quickly, kind of having your reasons laid out uh, and, and ready to go on the record and then be ready to put it on the record. We only have a couple minutes left here. So if I could just ask each of you, starting with Ms. Tripp, um, any kind of Closing thoughts or golden rule that you typically go by or want to share? Um, I think from the defense part of it, always make sure your client is involved um, in the decisions and explaining to them, you know, why you're making the the decisions. You know, of, you know, oftentimes this could be the, the first time that, you know, that they're dealing with this process and you as the attorney, you know, you've tried however many cases, but this is all new to them. So, you know, just make sure you explain it well to them ahead of time, like what it's going to look like, how this is going to work, where everyone's going to stand. Um, I, I think that's apart from everything else we've talked about today. I think that's the biggest piece. Like, don't this is a huge, important decision making thing. But remember, that the people that you pick are going to be making a decision that's going to impact the life of your client. So you want to make sure they feel like they're part of the process as they have the right to be. And Attorney Sheen, you got anything? Um, I would say trust yourself. Um, a lot of different things have come up over the course of this webinar that um, have reminded me how I tell people to trust themselves. Like, um, you know, judges can make mistakes too. So um, make sure that you're paying attention and, and you're getting the information that you want on everyone. And so if it comes to making any sort of a challenge, trust yourself and go ahead and do it. Don't hesitate. Um, voice it, maybe you could change their mind. Also trust yourself and don't, um, you know, oftentimes people want to just get the trial off the ground. And I've been in the position of having people seated and running out and so not making challenges I wanted to make. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't a good decision. So 
trust yourself and your experience and your knowledge and what you've gained over the course of the selection process um, and speak up and say what you need to when you need to. Judge, any final thoughts for us? Yes. Um, use use the, the processes that are available. Don't just say, let me get, get this over with and get to my opening statement and your mind's on your opening statement and you're just going to skip over this. Um, it's an important part of the process and you have to use uh, the voir dire uh, uh, options that are available to you because they're helpful. When I started in the DA's office several years ago, not to make her feel old, but Amanda was my boss back then. Um, <laughs> she, she was. And uh, Jessica was my colleague. So she's right there in, in, with the old people, too. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus, I'm teasing. teasing. Um, but back then, I, it, it's crazy when uh, I, I think about it. But back then, you know, we didn't do any of this stuff. And this is not that long ago. We didn't do any of this stuff. You know, you, you, you ran through jury selection unless the juror like raised their hand or there was something clearly in their questionnaire. They got sat in the box and and you use a preemptory and that was it. You never interacted with them. It was it was a crazy way in hindsight to pick uh, to pick juries It move faster. But it, I don't think it was really more efficient. I, I don't think it was more just. So uh, I think things have developed really well and allows lawyers now uh, to interact with jurors in a much more productive way. And you should utilize it. Well said. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for being here, for speaking with us and for uh for sharing what you had to share. Um, and thank you all for joining us for this uh, webinar on jury selection and hearing from our three great panelists. Um, and I, I think with that, it being the five o'clock hour, that is probably gonna be it for us. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Thank you guys. Andrew, nice moderating. Huh. I think you I think you got a thing there. <laughs>